And seeing the city, Jesus wept over it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Why was our Lord crying over Jerusalem? The great doctor of the church, the Venerable Bede, gives three reasons. He was grieved over the blindness, hard-heartedness, and utter ingratitude of the people of Jerusalem because they would not receive him as their Messiah and Savior. As a result of the rejecting him, he saw that his labor and sufferings for them, for the most part, would be in vain. They'd be frustrated. They'd be rendered of no effect. And he saw the vengeance of God being poured out upon them during the destruction of the temple and their nation by the Roman legions under Titus. Now keep in mind that today's gospel, when he's looking over Jerusalem, and crying over him actually takes place on Palm Sunday. Our Lord has just written into town with the people spreading their cloaks on the ground before him, crying out, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the highest. He's just recently raised Lazarus from the dead, a man that had been lying dead in the tomb for days. And so many people were aware of this, that is the inspired, inerrant word of God tells us in John 11, the chief priests and Pharisees had a meeting and said, quote, What do we do? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him alone, all will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take our place and nation. Close quote. So they know who he is. They know he's the Messiah. They recognize his miracles. And the leaders have recognized from the beginning that our Lord had been sent by God. In the very beginning of our Lord's public ministry, Nicodemus had come under the cover of darkness to speak with our Lord. Now, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the supreme governing council of the Jews, the religious governing council. And he approaches our Lord by cover of night and tells him, Rabbi, we know that thou art come a teacher from God. For no man can do these signs which thou dost unless God be with him. So they knew our Lord was sent by God. By this time, they know he's the Messiah, but they just don't want to lose their power. They don't want to submit. But because he's the way and the truth and life, because no man can go to the Father saved by him, and their very refusal to submit, and their very refusal to follow him, by that very act, they have closed the door of heaven to themselves. In just a few days, he's going to pour out his precious blood on the cross. He's going to redeem them from their sins and open the gates of heaven of mankind, yet it's going to be of no avail for so many of his own people. It's going to be of no avail. We're reminded of this horrific reality every day in the last gospel, where we hear, In him was life, and life was the light of men. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now we can see why our Lord is crying in today's gospel. He's crying over Jerusalem because he sees that so many of his people, his chosen people, whom he loves so much, will consciously, willfully, and maliciously reject him. And in doing so, they reject the only possible means for them to gain heaven. And he's weeping because he can foresee the absolute horrors 
that are awaiting this doomed city because he knows full well that a people who reject the known truth are doomed to blindness and perversity. As his holy word teaches in Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, if we sin willfully after having knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain dreadful expectation of judgment and the rage of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And the Haydock commentary states, quote, this speaks of the sin of willful apostasy from the known truth, after which we have all manner of reason to look for a dreadful judgment, the more because apostates from the known truth seldom or never have the grace to return to it again. Close quote. Those who sin willfully after having knowledge of the truth have all manner of reason to look for a dreadful judgment because apostates from the known truth seldom or never have the grace to return to it. So they should be filled with a fearful expectation of judgment and look forward to the fury of a raging fire which will consume them. His Holy Word teaches in the first chapter of St. Paul's letter to Romans that there are other nightmarish consequences for a society like Jerusalem in the time of our Lord, a society that deliberately rejects the known truths about God. I quote, but I will edit it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion, committing shameless acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a reprobate sense and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. So our Lord cries over Jerusalem because he knows full well that a people who have rejected the known truth are doomed to blindness and perversities of the most heinous types. And as we all know, so it came to pass. An eyewitness named Flavius Josephus describes one of the very powerful factions in Jerusalem before the city was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman legions under Titus. Now, as we listen to this, 
We should think about what we've just learned from the Word of God about a society that deliberately rejects the known truths about God. So I'll read from Josephus. Quote, Their inclination to plunder was insatiable, and the murdering of the men and abusing of the women was sport to them. They also indulged themselves in feminine wantonness. They decked their hair and put on women's garments that they might appear very attractive. They had paints under their eyes and imitated not only the ornaments but also the lusts of women and were guilty of such intolerable uncleanness and they invented unlawful pleasures of that sort. And thus did they roll themselves up and down the city as in a house of ill repute and defiled it entirely with their impure actions. Nay, while their faces looked like the faces of women, they killed with their right hands. And when their gait was effeminate, they presently attacked men and became warriors and drew their swords from under their finely dyed cloaks and ran everybody through whom they alighted upon. Close quote, Flavius Josephus. So our Lord cries over Jerusalem because he knew full well that a people who have rejected the known truth, who have rejected truth incarnate, are doomed to blindness and the perversities of the most heinous types. And considering the types of sins that so many embraced, have only to look forward to the fury of a fire which will torture them without consuming them. You don't need me to tell you that in our day and age, we find ourselves living in an analogous situation. So let's consider that. But before we do, let's be clear that today we're going to be talking about a movement, a whole militant culture of unrepentant sinners, and we're not going to be speaking about particular individuals who may be struggling with particular kinds of sins or perversions. After all, as the inspired, inerrant word of God makes clear, those individuals have been present in the pews right from the beginning of the church. And I quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read verses 9 through 12. St. Paul. Know you not that the unjust shall not possess the kingdom of God? Do not err, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Close quote. St. Paul points out that right there in the Catholic congregation in Corinth, some had been fornicators, some had been idolaters, some had been adulterers, some had been effeminate, some had been liars with mankind, some had been thieves, some had been covetous, some had been drunkards, some had been railers, and some had been extortioners. But now they had all been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So for any particular individuals who may well be struggling with particular kinds of sins or perversions, there is help, and there has been from the beginning. Obviously, a serious sacramental life and a serious devotion to Our Lady, especially to Holy Rosary, and to the Ugandan martyrs has to take first place. But we can also recommend other things. Courage, uh, mental health uh, professionals associated with North, and two books, The Battle for Normality, My Peace I Give You. The Battle for Normality, My Peace I Give You. Okay, that being said... 
let's consider our current cultural situation, finding ourselves, as we do, living in the smoking ruins of what once was known as Christendom, finding ourselves immersed in a people who, in large part, have rejected the known truth, who have rejected truth incarnate and continue to reject truth incarnate and in ever-creasing numbers are locked in blindness and perversities of the most heinous types. We'll start by quoting from the work of Dr. Scott Lively. He's a Protestant preacher, along with Kevin Abrams, an Orthodox Jew, is a co-author of The Pink Swastika, a very well-documented book about the actual roots and history of the Nazi party. Since he's a Protestant, he's going to use the term Christian church in a Protestant sense, by which he means an invisible church of true believers, whereas the correct understanding, which we profess in the creed, is a Catholic church as a visible church of true teachers founded on Peter. That being said, everyone here is going to understand his point. As usual, I have cut, spliced, and I think for obvious reasons, edited the quotes, all the rest of the quotes for the rest of the sermon. Scott Lively. Fifty years ago, San Francisco behavior was illegal throughout the entire world, except in Sweden, where it had been decriminalized in 1938. Yet in the space of just a half a century, this tiny 1% to 3% of the population have made themselves a global political power with greater influence in the courtrooms and legislatures of the world than the church of Jesus Christ. You should let that sink in. In just a few years, this tiny fraction, this 1% to 3% of the population have made themselves a global political power with greater influence in the courtrooms and legislatures of the world than the Church of Jesus Christ. This astonishing transformation surpasses that of Darwinism, Marxism, and even Islam in its spread and breadth of reach. During this time, these militants have defeated every secular institution in their path in the United States. The first of all was the American Psychiatric Association in 1973, when activists, using brown shirt tactics of disruption and intimidation, forced the APA to remove this behavior from its list of mental disorders. The next to last entity to fall was the United States military. The most recent and final secular institution to fall was the Boy Scouts of America. Let's pause on that for a second. In the year 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized the constitutional right of the Boy Scouts to discriminate against these people. And yet, even with that Supreme Court decision, last year they caved in. These people have defeated every secular institution with a specific policy against their behavior in these United States. Every single one. The Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts held out longer than the U.S. Marine Corps. It is a relentless, implacable pursuit. They want the whole world 
to be dominated by their sexual freedom ethic, and they will punish anyone and everyone who disagrees with them. There are no more secular institutions standing in these United States that have a policy against them. They've won. Any bets where they're going to turn to next? Scott Lively. What defines this movement is an implacable militancy, intent on conquest and control. Like the indestructible robot from the future in the movie The Terminator, they never, ever, ever, ever give up. Parenthetical note. Why don't they ever give up? Because the movement is being guided and driven by intelligences that never sleep and never quit. Back to Scott Lively. Now that the last secular barriers to this agenda have been crushed, all of their weapons and all of their warriors will be focused on the last remaining obstacle to their power, the Christian church. They have always intended to attack the church in the final stage of their conquest of our culture. As early as 1987, that sounds funny to put it in those terms, as early as 1987, they openly admitted this plan in an article, which later became the basis for their primary strategic blueprint. That's Scott Lively. Now I'll read quotes that he's assembled. Here are a few select quotations from this 1987 article, which capture its cynical tone and goals in furtherance of the larger agenda. These quotes from the article. The first order of business is desensitization of the American public concerning us and our rights. In the early stages of any campaign to reach straight America, the masses should not be shocked and repelled by premature exposure to our behavior itself. Instead, the imagery should be downplayed, and our rights should be reduced to an abstract social question as much as possible. First, let the camel get his nose inside the tent, only later his unsightly derriere. Next quote. So far, Hollywood has provided our best covert weapon in the battle to desensitize the mainstream. Next quote. We must be cast as victims in need of protection so that straits will be inclined by reflex to assume the role of protector. If we are presented instead as a strong and prideful tribe promoting a rigidly nonconformist and deviant lifestyle, we're more likely to be seen as a public menace that justifies resistance and oppression. For that reason, we must forego the temptation to strut our pride publicly when it conflicts with the victim image. Next quote. The mainstream should be told that we are victims of fate in the sense that most of us never had a choice to accept or reject our preference. The message must read, as far as we can tell, we were born this way, just as you were born heterosexual or white or black or bright or athletic. Next quote. Our campaign should not demand direct support for our practices, should instead take anti-discrimination as its theme. And last quote. 
at a later stage of the media campaign for rights, it will be time to get tough with remaining opponents. To be blunt, they must be vilified. We intend to make those opposed to us look so nasty that average Americans want to dissociate themselves from such types. Close quotes. There's a lot to think about there. And we should. To round things out, here's a few enlightening quotes that I've selected from various activists. Just a few. First activist. Recruiting children? You bet we are. Why would we push anti-bullying programs or social studies classes that teach kids about the historical contributions of famous deviants unless we wanted to deliberately educate children to accept our activities as normal? I and a lot of other people want to indoctrinate, recruit, teach, and expose children to our lifestyle, and there's nothing wrong with that. Close quote. Next activist. Quote. It's a no-brainer that we should have the right to marry each other. But I also think equally that it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage should not exist. Fighting for our marriage generally involves lying about what we are going to do with marriage when we get there. Because we lie that the institution of marriage is not going to change, and that is a lie. The institution of marriage is going to change, and it should change. And again, I don't think it should exist. Close quote. A few choice quotes from a longtime activist. This is a Georgetown law professor. Remember, Georgetown is a Jesuit school. I don't say Catholic. It's a Jesuit school. Georgetown law professor and recent appointee to head the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Now, as we hear these statements, keep in the back of your mind Executive Order 13672, which the president just slimed on July 21st, and which prohibits discrimination in a civilian federal workplace on the basis of gender identity and hiring by federal contractors on the basis of both orientation and gender identity. And parenthetically, if I'm understanding what I read in the papers correctly, it seems like the bishops have taken massive amounts of federal funds, at least the diocese, for this wave of illegal immigration right now. I wonder if that makes them federal contractors. Just saying. Keep that in mind. Now keep in mind that the, this woman's position on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the fact that her bishops have chosen to fight our government on the basis of religious freedom. Now keep all that in the back of your mind as you listen to what she's got to say. It's a member of the administration. Quote, There can be a conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty. But in almost all cases, the sexual liberty should win because that's the only way the dignity of our people can be affirmed in any realistic manner. I believe the burden on religious people that will be caused by granting our people full equality will be justified. That is because I believe granting liberty to our people advances a compelling government interest, that such an interest cannot be adequately advanced if pockets of resistance are permitted to flourish. Close quotes. The interests of our people cannot be advanced if pockets of resistance are permitted to flourish. Think of where you're sitting right now. This is a pocket of resistance. This is exactly what she means by a pocket of resistance. 
The interests of our people cannot be advanced if pockets of resistance are permitted to flourish. So what arguments are bishops using in their contest with the federal government? Religious freedom. And again, think about these statements by the member of the administration. I'm going to walk back through them. Think about that. There can be a conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty. But in almost all cases, the sexual liberty should win because that's the only way the dignity of our people can be affirmed in a realistic manner. The burden on religious people, the burden on religious people, the burden on religious people that will be caused by granting our people full equality will be justified because granting liberty to our people advances a compelling government interest and such an interest cannot be adequately advanced if pockets of resistance are permitted to flourish. Okay, well here we are. There certainly have been individual exceptions, but over the past 50 years, we priests and the bishops over us have collectively failed to explain and defend the psalm teaching of Christ himself on direct contraception and sterilization, on the intrinsic evil of these acts. And now with the federal government that's standing there holding a knife to our throats on this very topic, the best defense our bishops can articulate is not to fearlessly preach the gospel truth about this subject and order the priest to do the same. It's not to order all of us to do penance for 50-some years of guilty silence and sin. No. No, the sin goes on. And the guilty silence is going on. And the whole time, the lady are contraceptioning, and the lady are being sterilized, and the doctors, members of the medical community, pharmacists, are, are coming out with their plugs, drugs, jams, jellies, and wicked operations. Babies are being chemically aborted. Babies are not being conceived. And souls are falling into hell like snowflakes. And we get the fortnight for freedom. It shouldn't be surprising, given our sin and our guilty silence, that the next pressure being put to bear on us by the federal government is in regard to perverse acts. Why shouldn't it be too surprising? Because once we admit the principle that stands behind contraception and direct sterilization, the act created by God himself to allow a married couple to cooperate with him in bringing forth new immortal life, once we admit the principle behind contraception and or sterilization, at least admit it by our guilty silence in the face of its almost universal acceptance, a 2012 Gallup poll shows that 82% of American Catholics think contracepting is morally acceptable. Once we admit the principle that the act is not essentially ordered towards no new life, but is basically a recreational activity, then on what possible basis can we condemn other perversions? Either the act is ordered towards human life or it isn't. And if it isn't, then everything goes. And in that regard, yesterday I found myself on the website of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They have an article posted there which is titled I'm going to read the title. This is a quote. John Jay College reports no single cause predictor of clergy abuse. Close quote. 
In this amazing article, the lead researcher is quoted as saying that perversion was not a cause of the abuse. Now, this is a spectacular answer for anybody that bothers to look at the John Jay report, which is right there on that website. In the bishop's own report, 81% of the abuse was perverted. 81%. But we're assured that perversion was not a cause of the abuse. And the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops thinks we're going to believe this? I mean, seriously? Seriously? Are they actually asking us to reject the known truth? Our bishops as a group are apparently incapable of even identifying or even naming the problem within our own ranks to say nothing of articulating a solution. Given this level of moral obtuseness or cowardness, it's pointless to expect them collectively, not individually because there are great exceptions, but it's pointless to expect them collectively to address the danger from outside our ranks. So we shouldn't be too awfully surprised about the federal government holding another knife to our throats in regard to perverse acts. Let's close with a summary I got from the ADF, the lawyer group of lawyers that, among other things, fight these kind of battles on these kind of marriage issues and other things like that in federal court. Quote, The goal of their legal agenda is ultimately not about rights or benefits. The ultimate goal of the agenda is nothing less than full societal acceptance and endorsement of their behaviors and relationships. The goal is to have people think that perversion is morally equivalent to heterosexuality. Its goal is moral validation of their conduct. This is why people of faith who hold the biblical truth that this conduct is immoral pose such a threat and have become the agenda's biggest target. The route is clear. Move from government prohibition of such behavior to government protection of that behavior, then from its protection to its promotion, and finally from promotion to public acceptance and endorsement by compulsion when necessary. And that is exactly what is happening. The church is the only institution left standing in the way of the ultimate goal. Consequently, the stakes are immeasurable, and the situation is sobering. Barring divine intervention, the Christian worldview, as it pertains to marriage, family, and human sexuality, will be banished to the outer fringes of our society, and in many cases, outlawed completely. Close quote. The goal of their legal agenda is not about rights or benefits. The ultimate goal is nothing less than full societal acceptance and endorsement of their behavior and their relationships. The church is the only institution left standing in the way of that goal. Consequently, the stakes are immeasurable and the situation is sobering. Barring divine intervention, the Christian worldview as it pertains to marriage, family, and human sexuality will be banished to the outer fringes of our society and in many cases outlawed completely. What defines this movement is an implacable militancy intent on conquest and control. Like the indestructible robot from the future in the movie The Terminator, they never, ever, ever, ever give up. Prepare yourself, both morally, 
mentally and spiritually for a blitzkrieg, because it's coming. Pray to the Ugandan martyrs and pray your rosary every day, no exceptions.